If you've recovered from COVID-19 or unknowingly been exposed to it, you may have antibodies that could help COVID-19 patients. Donate blood and receive testing for COVID-19 antibodies. Visit Vitalant.org today. A different future starts with you. That's why GoDaddy does more than help you find a name. You can create, sell, and get found online so any small business can make a change. We need a new generation of thinking. Your way of thinking. Start different at GoDaddy.com. This is an ode to the glass noodle. You may be glass only in name, but our love for you is crystal clear in every Bibigo Korean dumpling. Your tantalizing texture tickles the taste buds, and while you are see-through, the world can't help but see you. The glass noodle, one of many obsessively crafted ingredients in every plump and juicy Korean dumpling from Bibigo. Go handcrafted. Go Bibigo. Authentic Korean dumplings now in the freezer aisle. On episode 34 of Confessions of a Marketer, we're talking marketing in the era of fake news. Welcome back to Confessions of a Marketer. I'm Mark Reed Edwards. We have Peter Horst in for a chat about a very timely topic, marketing in the age of fake news. We'll get to Peter in just a moment. Next couple of episodes, we're talking again with friend of the pod, Jacques von Niekerk, Wonderment Data CEO. Talk about timely topics. We'll be discussing the effects of GDPR on marketers in the first part. Then we'll dissect Amazon, Apple, and Google's points of view in all the chatter about privacy. So that's the next couple of episodes. Lots more in the works for the weeks ahead, including a collaboration I'm undertaking on innovation. We might launch a separate podcast for chats about that, but we'll have a pilot in a couple of weeks. This is a great medium, I think, for exploring the ideas we present here. And there's so much out there to chat about, and that's what's behind the innovation podcast idea. So stay tuned. On to Peter Horst. Peter is a global marketing exec and CMO with a few decades of working with market leaders such as Capital One, Hershey, General Mills, and Ameritrade. He's recently turned his attention to a major trend in the world, fake news. And he's got a book, Marketing in the Fake News Era. It's a very timely look at the challenges marketers and brands face. It was a very engaging read and a terrific chat with Peter, so let's get to it. Peter Horst, it's great to have you here on Confessions of a Marketer with such a timely topic. Thanks so much. It's really great to be here with you. So what was the genesis of this book, Marketing in the Fake News Era? This was something that started to dawn on me shortly after the presidential election in 2016. And I started to notice one brand after another getting caught in a really uncomfortable, very public position of, of controversy in some political social arena. And you know, among the first were Nordstrom that President Trump called out for dropping Ivanka's line. Then there was Budweiser, who got heat for being seen as anti-Trump because of their Super Bowl founder story. Uber was pretty much constantly in the news for one thing or another. And it just seemed to me that there was a new phenomenon going on where more and more brands were finding themselves, for one reason or another, caught in a real political sort of crossfire. And so when I was coming up on a speech I was supposed to give at a conference, I focused on that and what I called marketing in the Trump era. Mm -hmm. And... As I continued to, you know, talk in various conferences and people would ask me, 
you know, what would you like to talk about? And I'd say, well, we can talk about brands, we can talk about digital transformation, we can talk about marketing of the Trump era. Ooh, talk about that. <laughs> so there continued to be so much interest in this topic and such a continuation of this phenomenon that I thought, you know, there's, there's probably a book in this. So I spent the next several months talking to a whole bunch of really interesting CMOs, PR specialists, academics from sort of a sociology and a brand perspective. And wrote this book, which, you know, unfortunately continues to be pretty timely as the phenomenon is only accelerating, if anything. Yeah, the, the chapter in the book that I, I really identified with was called Identify Your Core Values. And to quote Steve Jobs, marketing is about values. You advise that to identify your core values, we actually have to ignore a primary tenet of marketing, which is that you are not your customers. So your sensibilities aren't necessarily your customers' uh, sensibilities. To find your true identity, of course, you have to look within. And, and so how does that work? Yeah. And, and the reason I sort of, you know, went at it that way was there was such a natural tendency among marketers that's so trained in us from day one that, you know, you look to the marketplace and understand the trends and the insights and what's going on in the research and the data. And that's certainly an important thing to understand in this context, but it's not really where you want to start because that raises the, the, the possibility that you will then seize on something that is true out there in the world that people care about, but that then doesn't really reflect anything intrinsically true about you, your organization, your company. And you, you then run the risk of being viewed as this sort of inauthentic, insincere, bandwagon jumper who's just saying, hey, look, there's a thing going on out there about, you know, race relations. I'll do an ad about it. Mm. And then people say, well, what are you doing here? You know, when did you just show up on this topic? Um, so you really need to start by looking um, internally to understand, you know, what is deep in the DNA of the company. And there are, there are a bunch of ways that you can do that. You know, if there's still a founder around, you know, what was that spark? What was that initial sort of energy and, and, and sort of aspiration to sort of get that whole thing going in the first place. And even if that person is not still around, you can still look to the company origins. And Samsung, you know, and they had to do a pretty significant brand reboot after the whole exploding phone thing, um, actually did look back to the founding idea of the company. And it was about this sort of, you know, improbable task of helping the community rebuild from, from devastation. And that led to this notion of, you know, we make what can't be made so you can do what can't be done, right? Very powerful sort of idea at the center of their brand. So founder um, leadership conviction, you know, it, it can be something very personal. You know, Howard Schultz, Starbucks was very active in the whole uh, issue of affordable health care. Mm -hmm. And that stemmed from a personal experience Howard Schultz had as a child, seeing his father injured on the job. And then unable to earn a paycheck because he didn't have workers' comp, didn't have health insurance. So there was a very deep and real personal connection. It could be something to do with the business model, right? Um, IBM, you know, was very active in the whole DACA Dreamers sort of debate because it was critical for them to hire diverse technical talent from around the world. And they had a bunch of Dreamers on the payroll. So uh, it could be something about, you know, what do your customers live with and, and are motivated by. But there needs to be some, you know, deep, genuine, authentic connection that really starts from more of an internal look. And then you look outside and say, okay, 
what is the overlap between things that you know matter to us and to the rest of the world and make sure I'm not just sitting on an island caring about something no one else cares about. But it really needs to start with that deep introspective look. And you, you describe a kind of process around a concentric circles of social need, brand truth, brand permission, and they converge on opportunity. Can you describe how that works and maybe what the process is that a, a company and a marketing group could go through on that? Sure. And this really applies to, you know, where you're going to lean in in a, in a you know, reasonably public way. But this is about, you know, what sort of filters and thought processes do you go through to be sure-footed around where will you plant your flag when it comes to your brand and your posture and the issues you're going to engage in? And, you know, certainly, as I said, it needs to start with what are those things that are true and important about us? And then how do they relate to issues that are important to the world, right? And it's not enough to say, wow, world hunger is a problem. Um, I make pencils, so I'm going to be the pencils that, you know, do ads about world hunger. Well, you know, hard to draw a line there. Maybe there is one to be drawn, but, you know, where is there a natural, believable relationship between, you know, the, the things that are true and meaningful and relevant about your business, your leadership, your people, and things that really matter to the world that people care about? There's another important overlay that I think a lot of companies miss, which is, and then on top of that, where do you have brand permission to go? Mm. Where is your voice credible, valued? Where will you be welcome as a participant in this issue? And that's where, you know, for all the good intentions of the world, you may just not have, you know, a, a credible seat at that table. And at the very least, then you need to be very thoughtful and judicious about how you engage and not presume too sort of, you know, authoritative a voice. But as an example, that's where, you know, I think that the dreaded Pepsi Kendall Jenner ad uh, went wrong. And, you know, perhaps, you know, did this starting by looking around and saying, wow, there's this, you know, race relations thing, Black Lives Matter protests. Let's do an ad. And there's poor Kendall Jenner popping a can of soda and stopping a near riot. You know, pretty ludicrous on pretty much every level. But that was one where, boy, that is a really deadly, serious, highly sensitive, near almost sacred topic that you step into very thoughtfully and carefully. And a can of soda just didn't have a place in that dialogue, or at least certainly not in that way. So those three considerations, what's important to the world, true about you, and where you have credibility, I think are what define a valuable and, uh, and useful place to be. COVID-19 patients need your help. If you fully recovered from COVID-19 or unknowingly been exposed to it, you may have the antibodies that could help COVID-19 patients recover. Donate blood and receive testing for COVID-19 antibodies. Visit Vitalant.org today to schedule an appointment to donate blood. That's V-I-T-A-L-A-N-T dot Help save lives and schedule your appointment at Vitalant.org. You could help save lives. Right, and, and you... I had a brief case study on Patagonia and their uh, objection to the executive order regarding the opening up of the Bears Ears National Monument. And talk about relevance. I mean, Patagonia is an outdoor company, right? And their point of view on that was pretty clear. Can you describe what they went through and what the results were there? Yeah, Patagonia is a really interesting one because it illustrates 
one of what I think are, are, is the more important points in the book. And that is that when you talk to companies and CMOs and brand managers about this general topic, you often hear people say, gosh, because of my business, my ownership, whatever, I just can't go out there and scream, Trump's an idiot, or we need to build a wall. So I've just got to retreat and curl up in the fetal position and do nothing and think nothing and mm. hope it all goes away. And it's really not that sort of extreme binary choice. And I, and I talk about a range of ways companies can engage along what I call the brand risk relevance curve, basically meaning the further you go, the more likely you are to be really relevant and resonant with some people who will say, hell yeah, I love what you're saying. And at the same time, you run an increasing risk of people saying, I can't believe you said that. I'm going to hashtag boycott you. Right. And the first step on that scale is what I call values, where you say, you know what? I don't want to lean in. I don't want to be public about this, but I will go through the, that process of defining what are my values so that I can be a you know, values-driven company and have a moral compass, but also because I know I can't control whether or not I'm pulled out into the spotlight. Something may happen in the world that forces me to engage, whether a mishap with a customer or a presidential tweet or who knows what. So you've done your homework, you know what you will say in the moment because you don't have time to ponder and focus group and have executive offsites when CNN calls. So that's, that's what I call values. Mm. Um, and plenty of companies, you know, find that to be the most prudent place to be. The next level up is, you know, what, what I call purpose and brand purpose has certainly been all the rage for years. And that's where you could say Patagonia, you know, lived for, you know, many years, um, championing the, the broad, timeless, and generally uncontroversial purpose in higher calling of, you know, supporting the great outdoors. You know, Dove, you know, real beauty, right? Mm -hmm. uh, a positive, good thing, but you're not likely to pe have people storming the gates of Unilever saying, down with real beauty, we want fake beauty, right? It's, right, not, right? it's not a hot button issue. There's one tick up from that that I call issues. And that's where you step into a more spiky, timely, tension-filled issue but without going all the way to a polar A versus B perspective. And that's perhaps, you know, where, uh, say, Frito-Lay takes on the issue of young people registering to vote or Heineken taking on the issue of civil dialogue. The most extreme with the highest risk, but also the highest likelihood of really resonating is what I call position, where you do say, you know, I'm for this, I'm against that, IBM and DACA. So Patagonia, for years in, in sort of the purpose realm, Suddenly, Trump signs an executive order wiping out millions of acres of parkland. So because they knew who they were, because they knew what their values were, and frankly, because they knew what their customers expected of them, they leapt from you know, fairly uncontroversial purpose all the way up to very polar position to say, the president stole your land, we're suing the president, really overnight. And they were able to do that and seize that opportunity and they knew their moment when it came because they laid that groundwork. But it just shows you how, you know, you can't just presume, you know, this is where I am, this is where I'll remain. Circumstances may conspire to force your hand. And had they not done that, then their fans, their their customers would look at them and said, well, gosh, you must not really have believed that purpose thing all these years because here was your moment and you didn't step up. Right. Where does Nike fit into this with them using Colin Kaepernick in, in that campaign recently? Yeah, fascinating one. 
And, you know, again, another illustration that this is not an issue that's going away. So when that Nike ad first came out, I had some really fascinating debates with some of the smartest marketers I know who were convinced it was suicidal, craziest thing they'd ever done. And I maintained I thought it was certainly bold and risky, but that it was smart and would pay off at the very least in the long term. And it's starting to look as though I might be right, though I do still believe we'll need the long-term look to see for sure. Mm. But I think what they did was to sort of align a few things, right? They've already talked about their long-term business strategy. Forget about brand and social, you know, but their business strategy was to focus on the big, major, mega metropolitan areas, New York, London, Shanghai, L.A., they then, and I'm presuming, I've not been on the inside, but they then sort of look and say, okay, who's our core customer and who's our future core customer? And oh, by the way, what's the future of popular culture, right? Today's sort of mainstream popular culture was yesterday's pretty edgy, urban, diverse culture, right? Mm, right. Um, Ice-T used to be a highly controversial rapper. Now he's a lovable cop on, on yeah, Law and Order. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, I think they made a very long-term bet on the future of their brand and on the power of really, really resonating with a passionate core and having the courage to say, you know what, that means that some people are not going to like us and right. that maybe some middle-aged white guys will tear up their golf shirts but, you know, the middle-aged white guys are probably not the future of the brand. They're probably not defining next year's popular culture. And they had the courage to say, you know, this will make us more relevant than ever, more talked about than ever, and a more vibrant brand, you know, in a world where they had competitors nipping at their heels. And they know, you know, for the first time in, I think, a decade, they did not have the top-selling shoe. So I think it was a very bold, very smart move that certainly put them on the high end of that risk-relevance curve where they were saying, you know, we believe what this guy stands for, and we know full well that there will be a whole lot of people who really don't like it. Especially for a company that very carefully avoided controversy. And, and, and you know, Michael Jordan didn't take a political stance during his entire career, pretty much, uh, because he didn't want to offend people who maybe disagreed with him. And so it's, it's a real change for that company. You know, it, it is, it, it's interesting. And, uh, you know, Michael Jordan was sort of the poster child for, hey, I don't do politics. At the same time, you know, if you say, what, what's the brand DNA of Nike? There always has been that sort of edge and that, you know, authentic, dig deep, you know, what are you all about spirit. Mm. And I think, so, so I think it has, you know, it, it's sort of a next level extension of that, but it's not a complete leap out of the blue from, from where they have been, I think. All right. The discussion we just had about taking a long-term view might be the answer to this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. So, you know, what lessons do you think a marketer can take from your book as they assess their plans and their opportunities? I think there are a few things. First and foremost, be intentional about whatever it is you do. Mm. You know, what you don't want to be is the default brand that is defined by the actions and choices of a thousand, thousands of people in your operation who are not governed and guided by a clear culture, a clear set of values that will help them know what to do when the script doesn't cover it. So that a gate agent who's got to find seats for, you know, three employees 
would find it unthinkable to call the police because the values are so clear you would never do that to a customer. So whether you choose to engage in a forward-leaning sort of public way or whether you say just, I, I, I can't do politics, I can't do social issues, whatever it is you choose, be intentional and know that you know, silence is often considered a choice and a position. So there's no such thing as the risk-free posture. And know that you may be forced into the spotlight, again, by, by circumstances beyond your control. So just whatever you do, you know, do it with eyes wide open, do it with full alignment across your stakeholders, and do your homework so that you're prepared to quickly address whatever arises. That, I think, would be really the most critical. And the next is just, you know, to remember that it isn't a binary, you know, go all the way out on a political controversial limb or, you know, stay utterly silent and inert, but that you can be sort of nuanced and choiceful about how far do you want to go and, and how uh, forward-leaning do you choose to be on any of these issues. One of the things we talk about a lot on this podcast is authenticity. Mm-hmm. And is that kind of the core of this, that you need to be authentic? It, it really is. And, you know, that that's one of a number of trends that, that partly define this new reality that we live in, which is this really deep-seated expectation on the part of consumers for transparency, you know, as set up by all the digital access they have to so much information and so much data. But, you know, they want to know the lives of the celebrities that, that they adore and they want to, right. you know, know, you know, what do companies stand for? I mean, there, there's a bunch of different research, but it all sort of circles around something like two thirds of consumers want companies to put their values on display. They want to know what they stand for. They want to engage with brands whose values and beliefs match their own. So it's, it's, it's important just for the health of the business that you be viewed, you know, viewable in terms of your values and beliefs. And then they sure better be authentic because if not, it'll be sniffed out very quickly. Right. Even as there's all this desire for engaging in higher purpose, there's also a cynicism that comes with it because there is so much bandwagon jumping and greenwashing and all this sort of insincere tapping into the trends but without a, a deep, authentic connection to what the company is really all about. So authenticity is critical in terms of how you present yourself, how you engage, and you know, critically how you follow through. So none of what we've talked about is accomplished through an ad or a bunch of tweets. But ideally, it starts with walking the walk and then following up with talking the talk. But you know, th there better be follow through. There better be a track record. There better be an ongoing drumbeat of your commitment to whatever it is you're espousing. Because again, that uh, anything other than that will be viewed very cynically as inauthentic. That's great, Peter. I really appreciate you joining me here on Confessions of a Marketer. This was a really enlightening discussion. Thanks so much. Well, it's been my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks to Peter for joining me. Very timely, as I said, and I think it all comes down to authenticity, doesn't it? Next week, Jacques von Niekerk, Wonderman Data CEO, in for a couple of episodes, first on GDPR and then on the activity of the big players when it comes to privacy. Stay with us. This episode of Confessions of a Marketer was written, produced, and edited by yours truly, T. Jordan of A-Class Productions, wrote the theme music. 
Confessions of a Marketer is a trademark of Reed Edwards Global Inc., and this episode is copyright 2018. I'm Mark Reed Edwards. See you next time. Thank you.